Martin was speaking this morning about Generation K, and uh, I had no clue what he was talking about. I spend my life ministering to Generation OAP. <laughs> and it's dawning while sitting there. I think I'm the only person who hasn't got anything to hand out or any YouTube clips. The only thing I can show you is a 90-year-old picture of John Wesley. <laughs> and uh, that, that's the world I live in because I, I speak on, on church history. We have a very interesting uh, language, English language, and uh, many of the words that we use are superfluous. I sometimes drive down the high street and see this sign, Quality Butcher. I think, what's the alternative? <laughs> and also, we sell fresh milk. Okay. And uh, we also speak about a Jewish rabbi. What other kind of rabbi is there? And also we speak of Bible Christians, or I'm a born-again Christian. Okay, well, what are the other kind? And as we are looking at this uh, little series of walking in the footsteps of John Wesley's successors, yesterday we looked at the, the Primitive Methodists, the largest of all the splinter groups that came after the death of John Wesley. This afternoon we look at an incredibly small group, but a very impressive group called the Bible Christians. It sounds a strange, almost arrogant title, but I trust that by the time we get to the end, it will make common sense. If you know anything about Cornish Christianity, you'll have heard of a man called Billy Bray, born in 1794 and died in 1868. He was a converted heavy drinker, but the Lord really turned him round. And he was an eccentric. Long before the Americans invented a life verse, he had two life verses. Psalm 30, verses 11 and 12. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing, You've put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and be not silent. Billy Bray said in a church there are two kinds of people. He said there are the doubters and there are the shouters. And he said I've spent too long worshipping with the doubters. It depresses me so I'm going to leave them and I want to join the shouters. And uh, Billy Bray was certainly quite a shouter. He said I want to take Vinegar by, by the spoonful, but honey by the ladle. And uh, William James, the psychologist, referred to Billy Bray as an eccentric, little, illiterate English evangelist. Well, Billy Bray was a Bible Christian, but not all Bible Christians were, were like <coughs> Billy Bray. And a man called F.W. Bourne, a Bible Christian who was converted in Kent at the age of 15, wrote his biography. And uh, it was a bestseller in the Christian world for 30 years after it was written. And during the Victorian era, it was selling 1,000 copies a month for 30 years. Just out of curiosity, who has read F.W. Bourne's biography of, of Billy Bray? Okay, well, not, not as many as I thought. It's an interesting read. And, and when you've read it, you say, thank the Lord he's in the kingdom of God, but thank the Lord he's not in the pew next to me. <laughs> Every time he worshipped, he just jumped up and down and with minus clogs on. <laughs> Methodism, by definition, was expansionist. It had to grow or die. And uh, we've seen that after the death of uh, John Wesley that the whole Methodist scenario just exploded uh, and everyone was scrambling to be the successor of John Wesley. Technically speaking, Jabez Bunting 
was the official appointed successor to John Wesley. And if you go to City Road in London, you'll find the grave of Jabez Bunting. He was quite autocratic, very, very conservative, and uh, he has a lot to answer for. The Bible Christians came out of all that. They couldn't tolerate the way that Methodism was going. And so they started in 1817 and survived for 19 years until 1907. And then they rejoined the Methodist Church. And uh, for me, that was a, a, a tragic thing. Church unity is good. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes there's a reason why denominations exist. And uh, this idea that we're all one in Christ Jesus and let's put all our differences on one side and let's all get together. Hang on a minute. There's a reason why some denominations came into being. It's because they fought against heresy, they fought against compromise, they fought against sin and said, no, we cannot go down that road and therefore we take our stand on this. After 90 years, sad to say, the Bible Christians became very woolly as did the Primitive Methodists. Someone said to me, what happened in the end to Primitive Methodism? Primitive Methodism bought into liberal scholarship. Have you heard of a man called A.S. Peak? I guess some of you have got commentaries. He has a big Bible commentary uh, on, on the Bible. A.S. Peak was a rank liberal, and uh, he deceived the Primitive Methodist Church. And uh, he's buried, by the way, in the Southern Cemetery in Manchester. And I went to see his grave, and his grave toppled over. It wasn't me who pushed it over. <laughs> and uh, I thought to myself, well, there you are, Mr. Peak. You are no longer a peak at all. You have peaked, and now you've toppled. And uh, A.S. Peak and uh, Hartley Victoria, the, uh, the liberal college there in Manchester, caused terrible damage to the, to the primitive Methodists. The same with the Bible Christians. In the end, they became very, very weak and, and wishy-washy. I have eight things I want to say this afternoon, so let's just crack through these eight things. And some of these points have sub-points, but no sub-points to the sub-points. Just, just eight clear things I want to say. The primitive Methodists were based around the potteries and spread with the flow of the River Trent. The Bible Christians primarily were based in, in Devon and in Cornwall. Uh, they did spread, but primarily that was their heartland. And I went down to a small village called Shebur. It's still there. Uh, the very founding chapel that they built, uh, and all the pioneers of the Bible Christians are buried there, even F.W. Bourne. And it's quite moving to, to stand there and read the gravestones of, of men and women who, believe me, led hundreds to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I find that quite moving. John Wesley went down to Cornwall on 32 occasions. But if you look at Cornwall, it's a massive place, as is Devon. Uh, and even though he went there 32 times... When he died, there was much of Devon and Cornwall that he hadn't even touched. And that became the heartland of the Bible Christians. As I say, they started in 1817. When they rejoined the Methodist Church in 1907, they had 34,640 members, 220 ministers, 15,000 local preachers. And during their time, they built a chapel a month. A chapel a month. They weren't big places. Some of them were that could seat 500 people. And if you go down to, to Cornwall and, and to Devon, as you drive through the country lids, as I've done, you often come to these chapels. They've now been turned into houses, but it says BC, not before Christ, Bible Christians. They had chapels absolutely everywhere. Now, it, it's very dangerous to generalize because, generally speaking, general statements are very general. <laughs> And, uh, but you sometimes have to be general to pay it with a big brush to give people a general idea. And 19th century Devon 
and Cornwall were not exactly the centre of English life. Newspapers were hardly heard of down there, and, and, and the main kind of form of entertainment was, was cockfighting and bear baiting. And the church, to put it bluntly, was, was dead. There were small Methodist enclaves here and there, but you know, even today in the 21st century, it's difficult driving around Cornwall and Devon because of the narrow lanes. Go back to the days of Wesley on the back of a horse. Trying to reach out to those communities in inclement weather was almost impossible. And so there were acres and acres and acres of, of area with no gospel witness at all. And the Anglican churches I was reading, I think I probably read more about the Bible Christians than the primitive Methodists or the independents during this past year. I mean, in all my reading, and I don't say this with glee as a nonconformist, please believe me, the Anglican church was dire. Absolutely dire. And the only thing that ministers were known for were being the best drinker in the village, the man owning the best kind of fighting cocks, or the best man at shooting. Very, very few men were known for being gospel preachers. And, and I love that expression, do you? A gospel preacher. My accountant, I've told you this before, my accountant is a non-Christian and he's in Swansea. And uh, I pastored in Swansea for just over 10 years, and I now live 250 miles from Swansea, but I go back to my sea, my accountant every year, and also my dentist. You know, kind of, uh, they both hurt, and uh, <laughs> let's get the pain over within one day. And to show you the kind of spiritual atmosphere that, that even just resides in Wales just a little, my non-Christian accountant, whenever he fills in my occupation, Without me prompting him, he puts name, David Earnshaw, occupation, preacher of the gospel. From a non-Christian accountant. How interesting. You wouldn't get that in England. In fact, how many gospel preachers do you really know? Men who live to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Happy if with my latest breath. I may but gasp his name, preach him to all in crying death. Behold, behold the Lamb. So here's, here's Devon and Cornwall with little Methodist enclaves, but by and large totally dead. And in that situation, the Spirit of God began to blow and the Bible Christians were born. How did it all start? That's question number two. How did it all start? There are five people I just want to mention, but the last is the most important, William O'Brien. The first man is a man called Daniel Evans. He was a converted Anglican curate. I quote Augustus Toplady. In my generation, converted Anglican clergymen are as rare as comets. Well, we just spotted one. There goes Daniel Evans. He was a converted Anglican curate. He, he, he'd been recently converted, and he was given the post of being the curate of Sheber. And because this man had discovered new life in the Lord Jesus, he wanted to share it with his congregation. And uh, in my final year at Theological College, we had a man come to address us about what it's going to be like in the pastorate and what kind of church to look for. It's, uh, it's kind of fresh as fair, isn't it, at the end of every year in the theological college, all these churches looking for their kind of man. And uh, the, the man who is a very well-known man, and he's, he's now in his 80s, he said to us, young men, let me give you some advice. If you're going to go to a church, go to one that's red hot or totally dead. But don't go to one that's lukewarm, where you've got to get the stethoscope out to see if there's any spiritual life. He said, if it's totally dead and there's life, you'll know that God is moving. 
And if it's red hot, you'll catch a light and get kind of burnt with the whole experience. And you know, he's absolutely right. Nothing is more draining than a lukewarm evangelical church. It's enough to make the Lord Jesus Christ sick. So here's this young converted Anglican vicar. He's sent to Shebar by the Bishop of Exeter and he starts preaching the new birth. And people start to come alive in his congregation. What a shock it must have been for them. By the way, it cost him his ministry. I often think of John the Baptist, but the Lord prepared, prepared him for 30 years, for six months. And having done his ministry, it was time to go home. And here's a man, he's sent by God to this remote village in, 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 in Cornwall, kind of North Devon, just on the border. He, he preaches for a few months about the new birth. The Bishop of Exeter is so incensed by his preaching, he says, I remove your preaching license. And I said to myself, David, do you love the gospel so much that you'd be quite happy to forfeit your ministry, provided you've been a catalyst to see a work of God commence? And so he lost his preaching because he preached the gospel. The second person to think about, or the second couple really, is, is John and Mary Thorne. They were in his congregation. And uh, they, were, they were farmers, typical family, going along, got a new curate, see what he's like. The first Sunday he preached, you must be born again. Second Sunday, you must be born again. Third Sunday, why aren't you born again? <laughs> and he's preaching this week after week. And you can imagine, you know, the discussion. You know, sometimes we, we can get very elaborate in our preaching and wonder why nothing ever happens. You can imagine after a month folk thinking, what's this born again business? And by the way, have you been born again? No, I haven't. No, neither have I. So what's it? How do you get born again? I dare any of us who have pulpits on a regular basis to preach the new birth for two months. Week after week after week. To see, people think, oh, I know what he's doing. He's just kind of, uh, he's not doing any work during the week and just pulling out an old one. And you've got to run the risk of that. So this young, excited vicar is preaching that. Mary Thorne is so full of conviction that after he preaches one Sunday morning, she stands up and says, vicar, I've got something to say. This is what she said. We have her words. The blessed spirit of the Lord hath convinced me what a hell-deserving sinner I have been. The Lord hath forgiven all my sins, and the Blessed Spirit hath given me the witness of it. The Blessed Spirit is ready to witness the same blessing to all present, if they'll but seek it. Now, I know that's kind of good old-fashioned language, but, but people understood what she was saying. She said, I've been saved. And again, it's almost like the Billy Bray situation, where, you know, the situation when William Haslam was preaching, an unconverted Anglican minister, and uh, he gets converted as he's preaching, preaches himself into the kingdom of God. One of the members who understands these things recognizes Vickers just got saved and says, Oh, a Vickers just got saved. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? Read the biography of William Haslam. You know, it's wonderful. It gives you hope for the Anglican church. In fact, for any church, the Baptist church, the Methodist church, the congregational church, this was going on. And so this woman stands up. You can imagine the heart of Daniel Evans going, Lord, it was worth it. She comes into the kingdom. So does her husband. And that's the beginning of a work of the Spirit in Shebar. If you move further north, quite some distance, you come to a place called Gunwen. 
And in 1778, a young baby was born, of course, called William O'Brien. And he's going to be the focus of all our discussion for the rest of the afternoon. His parents were interesting people. His mother was Quaker in background. And by the way, a lot of the early Methodists were deeply influenced by the Quakers. And uh, I lived quite close to Pendle Hill uh, in the Ribble Valley, and it was on Pendle Hill that George Fox claimed he had an experience in the Holy Spirit. And uh, we'll come to George Fox tomorrow because what an interesting character he was in relation to the independent Methodists and preaching a free gospel. But the Quakers, today they're just a society of friends, like a lot of churches. You know, our church is a nice church. Got some good friends there. Well, that's the same of a golf club, the Stamp Collecting Club, the Morris Minor Club. You know, nice people. But uh, we have to say that in the early days, there was a move of God among the Quakers, and some of them were quite clearly born again. And so here's this man, William O'Brien. His mother has strong Quaker connections, but recognizes the gospel. And when John Wesley is preaching in the area, she says to William, her seven-year-old son, you need to hear this man preach. And she took William to hear John Wesley preach. John spotted him in the crowd, and when it was over, he looked him out, and at the end of the service, laid hands on William O'Brien. We have his prayer. May this son of yours be a blessing to hundreds and thousands. Wow. Was that prophecy? His father was a, was a nominal, nominal Anglican who, who really, to my understanding, had no clear understanding of the gospel. And he died in 1854 at the age of 63, the same year as Daniel Evans, the man who lost his ministry. William grew up and he got married. But in the meantime had come under deep conviction of sin. We sometimes sing that hymn by, by Daniel Whittle. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through his word, creating faith in him. And, and one of the romantic things about preaching is this. You haven't the faintest idea what's going on in people's hearts and what the Spirit is doing. And that's romantic. And as I kind of drive to church every Sunday, I say in my heart, Lord, this could be quite a romantic day. Who knows what's going to happen today? William O'Brien was under conviction of sin. And what Mary Thorne did, a lady he never heard of, down in Shebor, he did in Gunwen Parish Church. After the vicar had, had given his sermon, which had nothing to do with his conversion because he wasn't a saved man, he sort of said, Vicar, I've got something to share. This week, I committed my life to Christ. You can imagine people going, what? You know, you committed your life to Christ. And by the way, when I say that the church was dead in those days, most Anglican churches had two sermons per year and no evening service. Can I just press the pause button? Okay, I'm not an evangelist, neither am I Jeremiah the prophet, but I'll just make an insight if you don't mind me saying that. The way that the evangelical church is going in Britain, we are shedding our evening service left, right and centre. And true exposition of scripture is dying on its feet. It is not a sign of growth and being modern. It's a sign of backsliding. And how interesting, when you look at the history of the Christian church, here's the Church of England. The vicar was only expected to preach twice a year. After that, no, no. Other than that, you just go through the prayers, dole out the communion, hatch, match, dispatch. That's what you're paid for. 
And we know that's not the role of the ministry. It is to declare the word of God. And yet, without any pressure, our churches are voluntarily doing that. I used to pray with a man when I was in South Wales. And on a Sunday evening, we get 150 people to his evening service. Twenty-odd years later, now that church meets in the local Indian restaurants for a curry every Sunday evening. That is not progress. That is going backwards. And, but by the way, what happens if you don't like curry? <laughs> and also, what does that to say, say to those who are unemployed in the church? Yeah, it's all becoming very middle class, isn't it, friends? And it has to stop. And so here's a man, he stands up in the church and says to his vicar, by the way, the pause button's now off. He, he, he stands up and says, I become converted. After his conversion, because it was a rural community, he went around every house and every farm in the boundary of that parish telling them what had happened to him. And at the end of 12 months, he had led 70 people to the Lord Jesus. I only know one man and he's now with the Lord, who actually did that when he was converted. When he was converted, he went round the whole estate in which he lived, because they all knew him, and said, I'm a changed man. Can I tell you what has happened to me? And he said, not one person closed the door on me. Powerful, isn't it? William O'Brien then became quite ill. I think probably he was burning himself out. He's trying to look after his farm. He's married. He's got children. Uh, he then became quite ill. And, and he felt he was dying. And, and he said to the Lord, Lord, if you get me up from this, this deathbed, I, I vow I will give the rest of my life to become an evangelist for you. Well, God raised him up. And so he said, my days of farming have to be over. He still kept it for a little while. Others looked after the farm, but he said, right, Lord, I've got to be released to preach in the gospel. And that's what he did. By the way, we were at war at that time with America. There were great difficulties and so every American in this country was imprisoned in Dartmoor. That's interesting, isn't it? And so he thought, well, I've got a captive audience. So he sought permission. Yeah, you can come in. And so he used to go into Dartmoor prison on a regular basis, preaching to the Americans. How, how passionate was this man for the gospel? The Anglican church was dead. The Methodist church around there was, was functioning so he threw his lot in with the Methodists. You know how Methodists work? You have all these individual chapels that come together as a circuit, and each circuit has a superintendent. The superintendent of that circuit around that area was a man called Edward Millward. You would have thought that the superintendent would have been absolutely thrilled that in one of his Methodist churches was a young converted man with his converted wife who was leading people to Christ 70 at a time, bulking up the congregation, going, this is absolutely wonderful. He did everything within his power to oppose him. And this is a man who was alive when John Wesley was alive in ministry. How quickly you can lose it. And when William O'Brien said to Edward Millwood, I, I feel called of God to go into full-time ministry, he blocked him. He blocked him. He ignored the church. He did it Lorenzo Dow. Well, that's what you say, but I feel called of God. And so he went just preaching here, there, and everywhere. And, and I've read several biographies of William O'Brien. And it almost seems that wherever he went, he was like a, that book by Mrs. Calman, Streams in the Desert. You know, wherever he went, he left behind 
flourishing life, leading people to the Lord Jesus Christ. As he's wandering all around North Devon and Cornwall, eventually he came to Shebar. And the thorns, the lady who stood up and said, I've got converted, Vicar, can I share my testimony? She and her husband heard that William O'Brien was in the air and said, come and preach in our farmhouse. We'll get as many in as possible. So they crammed the farmhouse full and this man preached and were told that the Spirit of God just came down. At the end of the meeting, 22 people in unison said to William O'Brien, if you will stand up and be our leader, we will support you. This is what we want. We're tired of the deadness of the Anglican Church. We're tired of the lukewarmness of the Methodists. We want something that is passionate that we can bring our friends and family to. Will you be our pastor? Wonderful. And so on the 9th of October, 1815, at Lake Farm in Shebar, which is still there today, the Bible Christians were formed. Just 24 years after the death of John Wesley. How quickly can you cool as quick as that? As quick as that. You can imagine what the Methodist church said. Oh, this, these, these people are tearing up the roots of Methodism in Devon and Cornwall. Nothing of the sort. And how about this? When William O'Brien was first converted, he was so thrilled with the gospel and so delighted about what was happening, he built a Methodist chapel on his own farmland out of his own money. And, and the chapel's still there. And uh, he, also, he also dedicated a little bit of land for, for burying. And his mother's buried there, Thomasine, the one who took him to see John Wesley. And he gave this land and this chapel to the Methodist church and said, look, I've built you a Methodist chapel. Let's use this as a, as a witnessing station. Can you believe it? He was worshipping in his own chapel that he'd built, although he didn't claim it. He said it's the Lord's. He was worshipping there when the Methodist conference sent down a delegate to throw William O'Brien out of the Methodist church in the very chapel in which he was sitting. I mean, how, how bizarre is that? And you say to yourself, what were these people doing in the highest strata of the Methodist church? Thirdly, growth. What happened in Shebar when these 22 people said to William O'Brien, that's the kind of preaching we want, that's the kind of spirit we want. When that happened there, people all around heard of it and said, that's what we want as well. And so suddenly, fellowships were springing up here, there and everywhere, in cottages, in barns, in workshops, in blacksmith's forges, sometimes they would meet on village greens and common land, and wherever they went, they always said, our goal is this, to lift the Lord Jesus high. William O'Brien wrote this, I consider myself as an arrow swiftly passing through the air, who during my short stay here had but one great business, not to interfere about state or kingdoms, but to be as holy and as much like my Saviour as I possibly can. You know, I, I could cry over things like that, that a man 200 years ago has those same kinds of feelings that we have. Here's this down-to-earth farmer in, in sort of Devon and Cornwall saying, Lord, I just want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And your heart goes, he's my brother. It resonates so well. At the end of one year of going public, they had 600 members. Between 1820 and 1830, they grew by 
1843, they had just short of 14,000 members and 11,515 Sunday school pupils. In 1817, they built their first chapel, and then they started to take off. And whenever you look at the numbers of the primitive Methodists and also the Bible Christians and also the independent Methodists, you always have to triple them. Why is that? Because even in the congregation that I pastor, I have far more non-members than members. As a pastor, it's a, it's a plague of any church saying, folks, if we all did what you do, we'll be closed in a few weeks. You know, commit yourself or explain why you're not committed to us. And uh, it's always been a problem of any Christian church. Uh, and so, you know, you can say, well, if they had 10,000, we know at least there were up to 30,000 people who were worshipping with them. But they were really kind of growing. Now, let me just say five things about their, about their growth. Number one, they were often accused of sheep stealing. Let's be fair, some did join them from the Methodist church. Some joined them from the Anglican church. That's always bound to happen. But the bulk, over 90% of their growth was conversion growth. Uh, and William O'Brien said to vicars and ministers who were losing people, the only reason why they're coming is because they have a better pasture here than what you're giving your flock. Do you blame them? Secondly, they greatly encouraged evangelism. That was their goal. They lived to offer people Christ. And William and Mary Thorne had, had quite a big family. And, uh, and one of their sons, James Thorne, this is what he wrote. He became one of their evangelists. To sleep two nights in the same bed is a luxury. Would you like to know what his motto was? I, I find his motto, it's wonderful. It's not from you know, the book of Hezekiah or, or anything like that. Here's his life motto. A back for any bed, a stomach for any food, a face for any weather, and strength for any work. What a man he was. Yeah. Not kind of super spiritual stuff. Oh, I've got a verse from Isaiah and I try and live by it. Lord, whatever bed it is, I sleep in it. Whatever they put on the plate, Lord, if I get it down, you keep it down. You know, that kind of stuff. Lord, whatever the weather is, you know, I'm not going to pray that you divide the clouds and give me a dry path to walk through like Moses. I'll just take it in the face. And Lord, if it's hard work, it's hard work. Wow, what a kind of man he was. And he was typical of many of the early Methodists, these Bible Christians, pioneers with the gospel. Thirdly, of all the Methodists, they were the poorest. A farm labourer in Cornwall in those days was on seven shillings a week. The Bible Christians paid their evangelists ten shillings per week. William Bryan said, how about this? Converts were more plenty with us than money. Say that to churches who have three, four, five, six million pound extensions. So why, why are you putting all that money into bricks and mortar? Why are you putting it into people and into evangelists? Buildings don't get folk in the kingdom of God. They never have done. But it's people, one-to-one, -one, engaging with the Lord Jesus. And William O'Brien, he was a bit of a wag. He was once asked, what are you on? He said, I'm on 300 a year. That's souls, by the way. <laughs> and so they were... They were poor people because they were ministering among poor people, tin miners and farmers. 
and sometimes fishermen, who really hadn't got much to give. And so they said, okay, we live at the level of our people, but our passion is to tell people about the Lord Jesus. Number four, by now, uh, Wesleyan Methodism was a long way removed from the working class of Britain. This was a working class movement. And uh, having come from a working class background, and I don't sort of uh, elevate that or decry it either, you know, kind of if you're working class, if you eat peas with your knife, <laughs> stick them on with gravy, you know. And, uh, they were very, very working class, and uh, they worked on the principle that a converted plowman was more useful in the hands of the Lord than a skeptical bishop or a proud academic. They never, never put a premium on ignorance. No, no, they valued the study of the scriptures. And only one of their people ever, only one Bible Christian ever got to Oxford. One man said to one of the, to the I think it was, I think it was to the primitive Methodist, I love this. He said, uh, I notice you haven't got many doctors amongst you. He said, because we're not sick. <laughs> The fifth thing to say is this, in, in terms of conversion, they, they went for adult converts. And again, I mean, it's been wonderful to see what has been shown to us in this convention about reaching out to young people uh, and to teenagers and 20s. In no way am I decrying that, I'm just telling you what they did. They really had a heart for reaching young people and uh, big on Sunday schools and big on youth work. But their main push, like the primitive Methodists, let's get men and women into the kingdom of God. Let's see families that are truly saved by God's grace. Uh, and the sixth thing to say is this, in, uh, in the 80s, 1830s and 40s, they moved really from being a cottage denomination or a cottage religion with outdoor evangelism to more formalized kind of worship. They were always primarily evangelistic, but, but they started to put buildings up. And I've told you they're putting up a building about a month. Their largest one was at Gwenap. Now, if you go to Gwenap, there's Gwenap Pit. I'm sure you've been there, where the Methodist church is there. And we go, wow, it's wonderful, John West has stood there. They thought that was dead. So they built a chapel there to house 500 people. And that was their most productive chapel in the whole of the Bible Christian history. Hundreds came to faith in Christ. I appreciate it was a different generation. Number four, female preachers. This is a delicate subject. And I'm just not going to comment. I'm just going to report on what, what went on, if you're interested. John Wesley accepted that certain exceptional women were chosen by God to speak in public. But then he put in brackets, but not many. <laughs> there was really no room for women in the Anglican Church. It was totally male-dominated. The nonconformists were far freer with women than the Anglican Church, and yet it almost seems these days roles have been totally reversed. And so John Wesley did have women preachers. And uh, it's interesting that one of the early critics of John Wesley said he was always surrounded by silly women. And when John Wesley split from the Moravians, you know he had this big bust up in, in Fetter Lane in London. I'm sure you know about that. He, he kind of uh, he fell out with them and stormed out and I think I've told you before that someone knew he was going to do it and uh, hid his hat under all the hats. 
So the idea was, he read out his statement why I'm leaving you, and then he was going to walk out, grab his hat, and go through the door. He couldn't find his hat. <laughs> yeah, there were some characters in those days, yes. He fell out with the Moravians anyway, and, uh, and when he walked out, 75 people walked out with him. 50 were women. Quite interesting, isn't it? 50 were women. And in 1742, John Wesley had 66 leaders, and 42 of them were women. You can understand, and John Wesley's marriage is often spoken about, to speak in favour of Mrs. Wesley, you can understand why she became very suspicious. Saying, John, you spend your life working with women. It's not good. And he was always corresponding with them. And he said he was above board. And in no way am I slandering him. But when two-thirds of your staff are women and you're writing to them all the time, you can understand why Mrs. Wesley felt, you know, where am I in this pecking order? You know, you come home to me at the end of all this and you're tired and you're worn out. I understand. By the early 19th century, 60% of all Methodists, 60% of all Methodists were women. And by the way, the Baptists and the Congregationists weren't too far behind, 59%, just 1%. And John Wesley, for credit, I have to say to him that he had some remarkable women that he employed in preaching the gospel. Sarah Crosby, Roger and myself, went to the main church in Leeds, and she's buried right outside the front door. Sarah Crosby was an incredible lady. Think of how difficult it was for a lady in those days. And in 1777, she travelled 960 miles... On foot. How about this? Preached 220 times in public and 600 times in farmhouses. Okay, that's 820 times. You go home and ask your pastor on Sunday, (laughs) how many times do you preach in a year? And some pastors preach no more than 50 times a year. And here's a woman preaching 800 times and traveling all those miles. Elizabeth Dixon, Mary Taft, Anne Coulter, she was known as Praying Nanny. But, but how about this for, sac- for, for sexist, sexism? You know the Methodists, they have their preaching plan. And, and, and their preaching plan was that uh, across the top you, you have the dates, and then down the side you have the chapels, and, and next to each date and each chapel was a number. Like number one, let's just say it's me, number one... Uh, no, I won't be number one. I just put me number three. Okay. <laughs> number three, David Earnshaw. Oh, so David Earnshaw's in that chapel on that Sunday. Whenever it was a woman preacher, her name was never on the plan, just an asterisk. The Methodists did not want women's names on their plans. How would that go down these days? And you have to say, you know, you can understand why some of these women felt very badly treated. Do you know what their favorite kind of song was? to rally them in those days. It was a hymn by Isaac Watts. You'll know the verse. Go labor on. This is women singing now. Go labor on, tis not for note. Your earthly loss is heavenly gain. Men heed thee, love thee, praise thee not. The master praises, what are men? (laughs) I think they slightly misunderstood Isaac Watts there, but... uh, (laughs) 
But some of these early Bible Christians, you know, those are the, the, the women that John Wesley used, and that's a, it's a great study looking at some of those women. The Bible Christians followed suit. William O'Brien, uh, his wife, I don't know how you'd cope with this as a gentleman, but, but his wife said, you know, William, if you feel exercised to share the gospel, so do I. She said, I feel called to go to the Isle of Wight. So she disappeared for months down to the Isle of Wight, just, just evangelizing. And, uh, and their daughter, their daughter, Mary O'Brien, at the age of 16 felt called to preach. Uh, at 18 she got married and carried on preaching for another 50 odd years. Their granddaughter, Serena, she uh, started preaching at the age of 21 and at 23 was sent by the Bible Christians to go to Australia to be an evangelist. I mean, would you send your 23-year-old daughter who just got married to Australia? Probably never going to see her again. She went out there, she married, she had seven children, only one of them survived to adulthood, and her exploits are absolutely legendary. And I could go on and on and on, speaking about all these female evangelists that the Bible Christians used. Fifthly, their missionary endeavors. They said, Lord, not just Devon, not just Cornwall, but wherever you want the gospel to be preached. One man who stumbled across the Bible Christians in Cornwall went to Kent, and he went to live there. And he wrote William O'Brien a letter. Let me quote part of it. He said, Mr. O'Brien, please will you send some of your evangelists to evangelize the white baptized heathen of Kent. The white baptized heathen of Kent. As a Lancastrian, I, I understand that. <laughs> so they went. Two men went and, and spent their time. They walked, they walked from Cornwall to Kent, got there. The man who invited them, Mr. William Clark, gave them a meal, and uh, they said, okay, where's our accommodation? He said, oh, I thought you were sorting that out. <laughs> well, what about the church plant? No, you, you find somewhere to preach. You're the evangelist. So having walked that, they had to find somewhere to sleep. They then started to rent places to preach. And you know, very quickly, God began to move. And uh, within a short period of time, five years, these two men had led a thousand people in Kent to the Lord. And in Kent, you will find the remains of the Bible Christians. And one of those young men who was converted was a 15-year-old boy called F.W. Bourne. And he was the man who then wrote the biography of Billy Bray. And they had their cranky ways, by the way. If you've ever seen pictures of the Bible Christians, you know, serious, beards, Perhaps they'd listen to the Bishop of London, let's grow beers to reach Muslims. Okay. And uh, he always took his dog in the pulpit when he preached. <laughs> Which I find strange because Paul says in Philippians 3, beware of dogs, doesn't he? But anyway. They went to London, Bristol, Gloucester, the south coast, the Midlands, Cumberland, Cleveland, Blackburn, Bolton, even to Cardiff. By the way, you can understand where people are when it comes to mission. Okay, they were formed in, in, in 1813, 1814. In 1821, they said, let's reach out to the world. And in one year, their, their missionary giving reached £100. Not, not much. 
1865, 1865, the Bible Christians in poor Cornwall and North Devon were giving £70,000 to world mission. 70,000 to world mission. And they, they sent people to Canada, to China. I'll just tell you two men before we move on to the next point. Paul Robbins and John Einan left Cornwall to go to Canada with the purpose of winning souls. And in 1865, they had built 132 chapels, enlisted 52 workers, and led 5,000 people to the Lord. It's, it's almost like fantasy. Thing. Is, is, this, is this, you know, you keep checking your figures, you're reading the book thinking, is this real? Because the truth is, I don't think probably all of us put together in this room have probably led 5,000 people to, to the Lord. All of us. And here's two men in Canada, away from their families, never returning, just as preaching the gospel. And then a man called Samuel Pollard went to China. He was their most famous missionary. And if you go down to Cornwall, there's a cottage with a plaque on, on the wall to say that Samuel Pollard, the missionary to China, was born here. Uh, and he went out there and did, did wonderful exploits for the gospel and sadly died at typhoid at the age of 54. And recently, the Chinese paid for his tomb to be restored, acknowledging the good that this man did in the country. Isn't that amazing? I couldn't imagine our country, could you, our government, paying for the restoration of maybe the tombs of the martyrs or restoring the tomb of John Wesley or such like people, Mr. Spurgeon. Their theology. What did they believe? They were Arminian. Not Arminian, Arminian. (laughs) And they were known initially as Arminian Bible Christians. Some of them called them Brianites after William O'Brien, but he said, no, no, that gives the impression that people are following me. And so they settled on Bible Christians. What was their theology? Number one, people need to be saved. Therefore, we exist to reach out to save people. Number two, those who are saved need to be holy. Conversion is not good enough. We want to see holiness worked out. And uh, I don't know how you feel about this, but in their meetings, used to cry out to God for a further work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Now, we have layers of theology on top of that because we're living in the 21st century and all that goes with that. These are people in the 1800s saying we've been saved, but Lord, we want to know more of the holiness of God in our lives. Powerful. They had their rule book. And so did John Wesley. You know, we were, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful living in the days of John Wesley. John Wesley had his rule book that if you didn't follow, you were out of the church. I wouldn't dream of trying to implement some of this stuff, some I would, I'd lose my pastorate. They said costly furniture and sumptuous food was out. They said let's live simply because we're not here for long and and the spare cash that we have, let's use it for paying for more evangelists to share the gospel. I wonder how many people in our church would say I would forfeit being a member of the Curry Club. to put that money aside so that we as a church can start to employ even a part-time in our Oh no, God, I have my curry. God, I have my break, Pastor. Oh, by the way, and I need my month away. 
Card playing, dancing, stage plays, fortune telling were all banned. If you were caught doing those, you were excommunicated. Eating of blood was not permitted, so no black puddings. Marrying unbelievers was not allowed. And plainness of dress was encouraged. So bright coloured check jackets were out. <laughs> I don't know how that got in my nose, but it got in. <laughs> plainness of dress. They were very much like the, uh, the Quakers in their dress. And by the way, the, the, the primitive Methodists were very simple in their dress. You see, their idea was this. Life is short. God has saved us. There's a lost world out there. Who cares whether it's Marks and Spencers or Saddle Row? Let's get those things on one side. Let's live simply and use what God has given us for the glory of God. Interesting. They practiced infant baptism. But also believers' baptism. And so when a child was born, they were quite happy to baptize it, not as a sign of conversion, but in the hope that this child would then come into salvation. And if that person then became a Christian, they were then baptized by immersion, which is quite interesting. When it came to church meetings and they couldn't discern God's will, they cast lots. Do you know something? I've been in church meetings for 40 years. And I'm growing in favour of that. <laughs> I have seen so much lobbying done in the name of the Lord. The Lord's told me, Pastor, I feel strongly about this. As true as I stand here, I know of one church that has an eldership that shouldn't be there, but they lost the vote. But the man counting and the woman said, it's near enough. I say no more. You know, the lobbying and the politics that go on in our churches, in non-conformist churches, is embarrassing. So they said, look, we can't agree. Let's just ask the Lord, yes or no. Lord, show us. And by the way, John Wesley did that as well. Should I go? Should I not, Lord? I don't know what to do. Yes, no. They even used it in terms of marriage, but we won't go down that road as well. <laughs> Wesleyan Methodist Methodism demanded a penny a week from its members to keep the organization running. William O'Brien said, that's scandalous. We haven't got a penny to give. And why are we giving money for people who are not doing it? So he said, as long as I'm in this church, you give what you want to give, but I'm not going to say, have you paid your penny? By the way, that will be very important tomorrow when it comes to the independent Methodists and the practicality of that. They used to sing their theology. You can order through Waterstones William O'Brien's hymn book. It's still available. And they had two hymn books. They had John Wesley's hymn book and also they had William O'Brien's hymn book, the hymns that they compiled together. And you know, every movement needs to sing its own signature. Even Quaker silence is a powerful song. And sometimes we could do a bit of quiet in our churches. They're just so noisy all the time. You know, be still for the presence of the Lord. And we're still, be still. Shh. Let's just sit quietly. And sometimes I just say to people, you know, it's been very difficult perhaps coming to this church. You've been trying to sort out the children. You've sort out a sick relative. Let's just sit quietly together for five minutes just before the Lord. 
and just pray in our hearts. Not aloud, just in our hearts. And say, Lord, thank you for five minutes of peace to talk to you. You know, we got the youth group, we got this, we got that, we got that. It's all nice, and oh, that was great. And sometimes we can't even hear the Lord speak. Take from our lives the strain and stress, and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace. And so they sang, of course, and they had times of, of silence. By the way, William Clowes, one of the founders of Primitive Methodism, he came down to one of the meetings of the Bible Christians, and William Clowes was quite an eccentric. We saw that yesterday. He couldn't, he couldn't cope with their worship. He said, too much for me. I said, I said wow, they must have been wild. <laughs> and then I started to read their hymns. And uh, I was reading the children's section uh, of their, their hymn book. Uh, and here's, here's one verse from one of their children's hymns. How about this? Listen carefully. Oft we see a young beginner practice little pilfering ways till grown up a hardened sinner. Then the gallows end his days. <laughs> I think he goes to the, uh, the true Richmond. <laughs> Uh, and here's another children's hymn. It's, it's from two kings. Remember when uh, those youths came and said to Elisha, go up thou bald head, you know? Okay, here's, here's a hymn about that for children. <laughs> when children in their wanton play served old Elisha so, and bid the prophet go his way, go up thou bald head, go. God quickly stopped their wicked breath and sent two raging bears that tore them limb from limb to death with blood and groans and tears. Great God, how terrible art thou to sinners e'er so young. Grant me thy grace and teach me how to tame my unruly tongue. <laughs> that was a Graham Kendrick of the, <laughs> of the 19th century. Wonderful stuff to sing, isn't it, really? Yeah. But their Sunday school work grew. <laughs> Seventhly, the Holy Spirit. There, there's no getting away from the fact that the Bible Christians began as a revivalist movement. And uh, in 1889, at a missionary society anniversary, one preacher said this, Our forefathers lived amidst a constant succession of revivals. John Wesley, sad to say, used to overestimate the numbers at his meetings. He, uh, he did exaggerate. We all do it, so I don't condemn the man for it. And uh, the Bible Christians were very particular about it. said, no, no, we cannot, we cannot exaggerate. And William O'Brien, often in his writings, wrote things like this. About nine in the evening, the power of the Lord came down upon the people the sword of the Lord was made bare. His arrows flew thick and fast, and the slain of the Lord were many. Some began to cry aloud, others still joining them. So they continued till about 11 o'clock at night. Several, it was said, were set at liberty from sin. Several children and old people lay on the ground for hours, yet took no cold. And you know, sometimes we, we pray for our pouring of the Holy Spirit. And I know there's been an awful lot of nonsense in different parts of the world. But sometimes God does shake a person that they have to sit down in his presence. And sometimes even lie down, saying, Lord, such is the glory of your presence and the weight of my sin, I have to bow down before you. I don't think we sometimes are fully aware of that. 
And so these men knew a great move of the Spirit. And I've got down here, there were five seasons of revival. 1837 to 42, that's five years of revival. And then 1847 to 52, that's five years. 1855 to 62, that's seven years. 1874 to 77, three years. 1879 to 83, that's four years. Together, in their 100-year history, they had 24 years of revival. Just the spirit. Not, not extravagant, but just slowly, slowly moving through Devon and Cornwall and bringing people into the kingdom of God. They put down key things like earnest prayer and fasting is crucial. Prayer meetings always after the preaching, not before. Getting people to make a response while under conviction of sin. When someone has got converted, get them to testify and bring them into church membership as soon as possible to nurture them. In 1889, John Tremling, one of their people, in fact an ex-president, he said this, speaking of the decline that was setting in, instead of praying that revival might come, we have now hired people to get up revivals. It reminds me of the Jews who hired minstrels for mourning. What is wanted is that we should get down on our knees then we'll be able to dispense with the various of agencies that have been tacked on to the church. I say this carefully. As a pastor, I am inundated with Christian organizations who want this Wednesday or that Wednesday or this Sunday or that Sunday. We're doing a great ministry. We need time. Can we come and tell your church? Until in the end, you, you kind of hold your hands up in horror thinking, Lord... I could, I could dispense with every son of a different Christian organization telling me how to do church. And every professional you bring in stops the local church really functioning. Now don't get me wrong, you're evangelists. There's a place for some of these organizations. But some need to go to the wall. And God's people need to get on their knees and do it themselves. And say, Lord, yes, thank God that they are doing what we can never do. But yeah, you bring in a youth worker so we can sit back and let the youth worker do it all. Bring in an evangelist so he can do all the evangelism and we say, oh, that's great, we've got an evangelist. There's a place for all that. But really the book stops with the church. And how interesting that this ex-president said, I realize that towards the end we were passing it on and paying for others to do it. I close. The eighth thing is with William O'Brien. What happened to this man? What happened to the original pioneer of the Bible Christians? I've left it till the end because it's tragic. He was a first-class evangelist. He was a first-class pioneer. But he was no pastor. He was no administrator. And all the people who came to faith in Christ under his preaching and under the preaching of his fellow local preachers needed to be shepherded and cared for. But he couldn't do it. It, it just wasn't him. And... Uh, he was a bad administrator, he was a bad organiser, and he was a bit of a dictator. And, and I understand, when you are pastoring any church, it's very hard, let's be quite frank about it, it's very hard working with a team, when you feel the team should go that way, and they go, no, we're going this way. And, and really this man should have been released to carry on winning souls and leave the administration to other people who are gifted. Sad to say, his own brothers then began to accuse him of not being totally honest. 
not being good at his administration and not being upfront with the way he handled people's money. He had public meeting after public meeting and private meeting after private meeting to show that he wasn't taking anyone's money. All he was claiming was his expenses and doing the work of an evangelist. In the end, he felt so wounded that they accused him of that that in 1829 he resigned and left the Bible Christians. And the man, my heart bled for this man as I was reading his biography. The man who was put out of the Methodist church twice and disowned in the very Methodist church he had built then felt so unwelcome among the Bible Christians because of these accusations he walked away and said I can't work with you any longer but you know what happens you know how it is in the youth group he goes out with she and then they split up and all her friends go ooh he's nasty and it causes mayhem in the youth group because a lot of the Bible Christians had intermarried it split the church right in half. Those who were for William O'Brien, those who said, I never really did trust him. And sad to say, his daughter was heavily involved in a family that was opposed to him. So here's William O'Brien, whose daughter is married into a family that is opposed to her father, and she's ripped in half. I want to be loyal to my father, but I've got to be loyal to my husband. What do I do? This festered for five years. And I have all the figures here. I don't want to kind of give you all the details. It would take too long. But during those five years of that festering, instead of growing, they lost people. And for five years, they grew every year. And then William O'Brien, the incident, and for five years they went down and eventually lost 2,000 people. And then when it was sorted out, they then started to move up. They also lost about 50,000 people because of death and emigration. Things were so dire in Britain during that time that folk emigrated to Australia and Canada to try and make a new life. And you think to yourself, if they hadn't had that massive falling out over William O'Brien, and if those 50,000 hadn't have emigrated, how strong would the Bible Christians have been? Very, very powerful. Put yourself in William O'Brien's shoes. Your mother was a Quaker, but you're not a Quaker. Your father was an Anglican, but you're not an Anglican. You first of all have to conversion started with the Methodists, but they put you out. You found the Bible Christians, they accuse you of financial impropriety, and so you have to leave. Where do you go? Jotty you know did? He emigrated. And he went to America. And he spent the final 37 years of his life just wandering the world. He went to America with his wife and his remaining family. His wife and family never came back. He came back. He crossed the Atlantic 13 times. You can, you can, I could feel the man's restlessness, thinking, these are my people. This is my home, but I'm not welcome here. People have been very malicious to me. And the fact that he kept coming back as if he wanted to be accepted. And every time they closed the door. In fact, during those uh, final 37 years, he spent a quarter of his time in England just wandering around. I was on holiday in New York with my wife some 10 years ago. And uh, there's a very large cemetery in New York called Greenwood Cemetery. It's where Ira Sank is buried, Henry Ward Beecher. I mean, 
you name it, they're all there. And I went to look out the grave of William and Mary O'Brien. I tell you, I I was deeply moved when I stood there and just saw two simple stones. It said, William O'Brien. The next stone, Mary O'Brien. Father, mother. That's all it said. And I thought to myself, and these two founded a denomination that saw thousands come into the kingdom of God and they die in exile in New York. Now let me bring it to a close and just very, very quickly, in a couple of minutes, say five things. What can we learn from all this? Number one, the biggest opponent to the gospel has always been organized religion. I couldn't care what label it has. Who martyred the prophets? The Philistines? The Amorites? The Girgashites? You know, the people of Judah. Who crucified the Lord Jesus? The Romans? They were the tools. The Jews. Who caused most opposition to John Wesley? The Anglican Church. Who gave the most opposition to the primitive Methodist, the Methodist Church? Who caused the most grief to William O'Brien, the Methodist Church, and the Bible Christians? Who gave C.H. Spurgeon the most pain, the Baptist Union? Friends, when are we going to learn that, that, that religion is a killer and it's the gospel that brings life? That's the first thing we have to remember. Secondly, we have to remember that we've got to live within our own gifting. Find out what you're good at and do it. And find out what you're not good at and don't do it. We aren't all administrators. We aren't all good organizers. Some people are wonderful administrators, wonderful organizers, but as soon as they speak, they can talk a glass eye to sleep. Sometimes very good people at church make dreadful missionaries. Oh, nice. He's got a nice wife and two children. Oh, he makes a lovely deacon. I knew a missionary that all he could talk about was Belgium chocolate when he came home. (laughs) Never anyone who'd led to the Lord. Do you know why? Because he'd never led anyone to the Lord before he went out there. So why was he sent? Find out what your gift is and say, Lord... That's my gifting. And if someone asks you to do something out of that gifting, say, I'm sorry, this is not of the Lord. It's not for me. Don't waste your time. Number three, the more institutionalized a thing becomes, the less effective it gets in its ministry. And I understand, here's the Bible Christians, they're growing and growing. Where do we put all these people? We'd better put a chapel up. And so they built all these chapels. That's fine, they built small ones, so they weren't too costly. Uh, And I say to myself, in terms of having given to the Lord's work for over 40 years, I sometimes say to my wife, where's all this money going? And to do what? And I say as a pastor of the church, if we spend more money on our bricks and mortar than on reaching lost people, I think we've lost it. If I can press the pause button, I honestly believe the days of church buildings are fast coming to an end. And we put up these multi-million programs and we go, wow, the world doesn't. 
in Chore, there's this impressive Mormon temple, but it doesn't incite me to go in. I don't know, wow, look at that, wonderful, I better go in. People aren't drawn to our buildings. It's the gospel of Christ that draws people. And sadly, as the Bible Christians became more building orientated, they began to lose it. This great quotation by one of the authors of the Bible Christians, he says this, the church began as an evangelizing body, but it ended as a small denomination, respectable, teetotal, and unable to maintain the mission zeal that was its first raison d'etre. The last Bible Christians devoted their lives to their chapels, but they were like the clergy of the early 19th century, full of good intentions towards those outside the church, but increasingly out of touch with them. The fourth thing, I could almost preach a sermon on this. It's very dear to me. William Bryan is just one of many who have been so cruelly treated by the church that in the end he felt safer outside the church than in it. And I tell you unashamedly when I read his biography, I wept. That a man who had given his life to, to preach Christ feels safer wandering around America than he does among his own people in Cornwall. And we who have been in ministry can write, can write books on this, can we not? That we have the gift of shooting our own wounded. And, and I feel very strongly about that, but just leave it there. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing William O'Brien and say, William, I love you in Christ. And what you did, while you were hurt for it, I have to say, I'm deeply impressed. And finally, in 1861, John Gilbert wrote this. The effect of Cornish Methodism in making the drunkard sober, the idle industrious, the profligate moral, and inducing men to provoke, to provide decently and comfortably for their families and to give suitable education to their children can be attested to thousands of witnesses. And most of those were Methodists. And the bulk of those were the Bible Christians. A wonderful, wonderful people. And you know, perhaps to be fair to Billy Bray, in relation to where we are today, maybe a few holy jumpers would do us no harm. <laughs> Better the pot boil over than never boil at all. Yeah, let's pray together. Father, how interesting that we we go back 200 years into church history and it's like talking about today except we haven't got the same kind of fruit and Father we beg of you we beg of you you tell us that you're not willing that any should perish Father if this is the case why is it people are perishing why is it so hard to see a soul saved and Lord we ask for mercy upon us that you may pour out your spirit that we may see something, not of the days of the primitive Methodists or the Bible Christians, but the days of New Testament times, with people coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here who work passionately to share the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I guess some of them have been hurt as well, crushed, sidelined, belittled, and yet their hearts desire to win people for the Lord Jesus. Father, we remind ourselves that we follow a crucified rabbi who came to his own and his own received him not. 
Father, we give you thanks for what we're learning from these people. We pray, may it make us better people and kinder people. Father, make us kind and make us gentle. Make us winsome. Make us attractive. And Father, may our inside be our best side. Because we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.